Welcome to the King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. Elegant neighborhood. Frustrated, the pastor went to St. Peter and said, While on earth I preached to thousands of people and tried hard to follow all the commandments, what an exemplary life the bus driver must have led. St. Peter responded, During your sermons, most everybody slept. But when the bus driver worked, everybody prayed. Handouts are um, a bit overbearing, but the idea is that hopefully, if you are interested um, or if you have a file, uh, this might be where you can. Uh, on the front page, the opening prayer from John Bailey. Uh, John Bailey, you'll be hearing more about from him today in today's class. He's also the author of Diary of Private Prayer, a wonderful prayer book that was. Um, um, Distributed to every family in the country. Hi, Beth. Hello. Um, there's a hand up. Oh, I was oh, just delivered. Thank you. Yeah. <coughs> oh. Hi. I'm Oh my gosh. Again, two weeks in a row. I have to say hello to this. <laughs> Take it, Philip. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm preparing you things for today. <laughs> Sorry. Did we pray this or not? No. no. Yes. <laughs> Hand out right there, Simon. Okay. Let me never think, O eternal Father, that I am here to say. Let me still remember that I am a stranger and pilgrim on the earth. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Preserve me by thy grace to glory, from so losing myself in the joys of earth, and that I may have no longing left for the pure joys of heaven. Let not the happiness of this day become a snare to my too worldly heart. And if instead of happiness, I have today suffered any disappointment or defeat, if there has been any sorrow where I have hoped for joy, or sickness where I have looked for health, give me grace to accept it from thy hand as a loving reminder that this is not my home. Amen. 
Well, that'll wow, bring you a short one, really well. A wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, where we are going today? Oh, before that, we're going to oh, sing. Yes. But before we sing, um, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Lutheran hymns. Um, and uh, throughout the class today, I'm going to be making references to your personal plans for your funeral. Um, and my hope is that as a pastor um, who some of the most frustrating, painful experiences I had when I sat with a family um, who had no idea where to go for the, for the funeral of their loved one. Um, some of the most wonderful experiences were where I met with a family and they brought in uh, a folder um, or a piece of paper where the desires of the deceased was outlined in terms of hymns, scriptural lessons, themes, poems, or, or whatever. That went. Just so, so, uh, if you love your pastor, can I say that? If you love your pastor, <laughs> do that. Do that. And, and you will also discover that your family will be most grateful. Most grateful. Yes. Our church in Raleigh, before we moved here, handed everybody that paperwork and said, fill it out and turn it in. <laughs> We've got one. And, yeah. and, um, and I have a slide at the very end here of a picture of King of Glory's funeral planning guide. Twelve pages long, elaborate, um, but it really goes through not just the funeral itself, but also a lot of other things that a person needs to consider. Thriving also has a wonderful, wonderful planning guide uh, that I highly recommend uh, for people who, who want to do that. Um, and um, of the four pastors, there was a pastor who didn't have his plans written down. They couldn't think on it. Come on, come on, I was like, wow. And um, I'm not going to tell you who it was. It was you, right? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> Because in Fairbanks, we went, we tried to get the entire congregation, to, and we had filed in in the church office where people's funeral plans were. So, uh, so where are we? Uh, so, I I just cannot tell you the resources that are available to you for comfort and for thinking about heaven. Not a lot about hell, but, <laughs> but but just a wonderful thing. So, in the crop, in the uh, the section that is called um, hope and comfort, there are fifty-seven hymns um, the um, that have to do, and most of them uh, could be uh, wonder, wonderful. Um, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Earth is, that's, that's, it's right here. Um, we're going to be singing that. And then the Easter hymns, 33 Easter hymns, 457, 490, uh, 33 hymns there. And most of those Easter hymns, of course, the funeral, we're celebrating the resurrection, and those Easter hymns work. And then this morning, um, one of the communion hymns, 619, at the early service, I want to read the third verse. Um, can condemn me now? Final judgment? <laughs> okay? The Lord is nigh who justifies. No hell I fear, and thus securely with Jesus 
I to heaven rise. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, right there. Lord, may thy body and thy blood be for my soul the highest good. Wow. See, um, the, the most powerful experience that I had with communion and a funeral was the funeral of my sister-in-law, Judy's sister, who died of an unexpected and tragic death. And the family gathered in Lockport, New York for that funeral. And at the funeral home, um, with a casket, uh, the pastor came and celebrated Holy Communion with us. And uh, and that was probably um, every every Eucharist, every Holy Communion, but, but that was probably one of the most meaningful experiences for us because we were broken. The whole family was terribly broken by, by this. But there, um, we had a sense that, that Jeannie uh, was with us in that Holy Communion. And, and, um, and that is why Holy Communion, uh, we, we can well imagine that our loved ones are with us in the celebration of that meal in a way that transcends, transcends our reason. So, um, I found out that I was probably one of two people who knew this tune at the early class. So, okay. based on this wonderful little book published in 1934 called And the Life Everlasting by John Bailey, the same author of our opening prayer and diary private prayer. Um, uh, we're going to be going to be looking at Lutheran um, funeral sermons, hymns of the church. We've already talked about the hymns of the church. Um, separating the fanciful and wishful from the biblical 
what does the Bible say about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting? And then near-death experiences, two views, Heaven is for Real by Todd Burkle, and Life After Death by Farnaz Masum. Um, so that is what we're going to be uh, taking a look at today. And um, our handouts, for the most part, will probably work through it. On your handouts, if you can take a look at the Athanasian Creed. In a previous class, we already looked at what the Apostles' Creed and also what the uh, Nicene Creed teaches. Um, and this is the Athanasian Creed that struggles with the mystery of the Trinity. That's what the Athanasian Creed is all about. So, for as a reasonable soul in flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, which we know from the Apostles' Creed, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. At whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. Interesting. Um, and they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is a Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. And of course the Athanasian Creed has, has come under um, some fire from liberal elements of the Christian faith because of that exclusionary term uh, that says, but yet Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, how do Lutherans fit, you know, this, um, they that have done good shall go to the life everlasting with the idea that we're saved by grace through faith? Um, or how do we reconcile those? It's the same way that Lutherans deal with uh, Matthew chapter 25 in the final judgment, where very clearly Jesus, you know, in the final judgment, uh, that people based on, um, I was hungry, and you fed me, was naked, clothed me, come, I was naked, you didn't feed me, I was in prison, you didn't feed me, you go the other way. So, and, and Lutherans have always been clear that this is the second stage. That the first stage is that um, these are people who have experienced God's grace in their lives um, and have been recreated so that their natural life is going to produce these good works um, as a result of the life of Christ. So, so we, we kind of push it a little bit, but we put that there's, this is the therefore. What's being judged on is therefore the Christian life. And I, was that question raised last week? Somebody, I think it came up a couple weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, one of the pastors here had just a wonderful answer that I can't duplicate, but it's basically the same. Other questions on this? Alternation brief? Oh, yes. And, sorry, it isn't a question. Just my sort of way to reconcile it has always been that it isn't a transaction. It isn't that I'm doing these things, so give me heaven. Right? It's that the, it's the grace of God that empowers you, gives you the energy and the 
thought process that enables you to do good works in this life. It's the way I've always told myself, having been raised Catholic. <laughs> well, no, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I like the grace part, but it has to be explain it. It's so good. Thank you. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. The Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was born 1703, died 1758. Um, he was um, probably the most famous theologian and evangelistic preacher of the 18th century. Uh, this is his most famous quote. Um, people who want to ding Christians uh, for hellfire and brimstone quote this quote from Jonathan Edwards. The uh, <coughs> holding yeah. yeah. Um, the, the amazing thing is that when you go and Google Jonathan Edwards, hit images, um, there are many, many quotes from Jonathan Edwards. And all the others are wonderful. <laughs> but this one, wouldn't you know that that's what he would be remembering? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he just rolls over and says, uh, Keener is showing my, that, that you know. So, so, uh, so uh, but there's, but there's a strong tradition. I was raised, I, I grew up in a, in a home, and um, by a Lutheran pastor who was definitely hellfire and brimstone. I mean, that was his, he, um, I'm sure that he preached the gospel, but I never remember he preached the gospel. It was always the fear and the uh, it was really it was really tough. In general, um, I think anyone that makes any body of writing, it's just like Martin Luther went off on uh, uh, the Jews in some of his writing, and and that's defaming. Really, yeah, yeah. we have a hard time balancing it with yeah. all the good he did. So the Great Awakening. Um, the first great awakening in the uh, 1740s um, was an evangelistic fever that went through the colonies, primarily led by uh, camp meetings. And, and, um, and in terms of um, the um, in terms of what the enlightenment was, um, not the, the great awakening. Uh, there were five points: all people are born sinners. Sin without salvation will send a person to hell. Um, all people can be saved if they confess their sins to God, seek forgiveness, and accept God's grace. What's wrong with that? That's good stuff. All people can have a direct and emotional connection with God. Lutherans, you know, that was, that was part of Luther's uh, shtick when it came to um, eliminating the chain of command to get to God, saying that we, we all of us are priests, the priesthood of all believers, uh, that, that, that all of us have direct access. And then, um, finally, religion shouldn't be formal and institutionalized, um, but rather casual and personal. And that was definitely a ding against Catholics and liturgical people who, who, got, um, who were kind of the focus of that. So, um, when I came to Fairbanks, Alaska in 1994, my head elder, uh, Bill Slayton, came to me and said, the Baptist church in town is doing heaven's gates and hell's flames. And I want you to go to that and see it. I refused to go. Uh, but then he came back. He said, we need to put this play on at our church. He said, Bill. I said, that's, that's really not what 
we're about here. Um, and and um, we, he and I survived that confrontation, and uh, he, he finally was convinced that I was really concerned about people's soul salvation. He, he doubted that at first, but I, I convinced him of that. But this, um, this play has been around for uh, 45 years, um, and it's been produced in a hundred different countries. Um, and if you go on YouTube, you can find uh, videos of the entire, it lasts anywhere from an hour and four minutes to an hour and a half. Um, the company comes into the congregation and helps you build the set, and the set is elaborate. Um, in terms of the uh, middle is Penn's Gates, a lot of mylar, shiny mylar, you know, with streamers, and then over on one side is is the fires of hell. And it's it's um, and I shouldn't put it down because it is definitely geared to people um, for the purpose of helping them make a decision for Christ. You know, on the basis of the good why would you want to miss the heaven? And secondly, why don't you want to escape the fires of hell? So so anyway, uh, there, this is still going on and uh, you might want to suggest it to Pastor Harmon and see what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. Just joking. Funerals. <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh, let's, let's go on. Okay. So four retired Lutheran pastors walk into Panera. And uh, we talked about funerals. And Pastor Kringle says, oh... I can tell you a story. He said there was a prominent family in my congregation. And they called me up and let me know that their pet gerbil had passed away. And they wanted to know they had children. They wanted to know if I would come and say some words in the backyard when they buried the gerbil. Mm-hmm. And he said, I was very reluctant to do that, but I didn't want to offend them. So I went, uh, said a few words. And as I left, the father handed me an envelope. And when I got home, I opened it up. And there were five $100 bills in it. So, so then, Pastor Winterhoff said, well, uh, I think I have a story that can beat that. uh, We we had a family in the congregation, uh, an older gentleman, kind of the father of an extended family in the congregation. He had been a surfer when he was a young man. And when he passed away, we found out that his desire was that his ashes be distributed on the north shore of Oahu. And that he wanted me as pastor to go and to do the ceremony. And as an incentive, he made arrangements for my wife, my adult children, and all my grandchildren to go to Hawaii. And he put us up for two weeks. So He so, made that up. That's not <laughs> And so the only thing I had a problem with is that they required that when I preached that I would wear a white sequin garment. And at the end of the sermon, I would do the moonwalk. And so I was able to do everything, but that moonwalk almost put me in. They said, well, um, I was pastor in Alaska, and I think I've got a story that, that probably uh, tops that. Uh, Terry Style, who had been a well-loved mayor 
of Fairbanks passed away suddenly, tragically. And since I knew some of her staff, they came to me and said, would you be willing to preside at her funeral, which is going to be in the Carlson Center. The Carlson Center is the largest venue of 6,000 people. It's where the University of Alaska Fairbanks hockey team plays her, you know. Um, so, and um, go there, well-publicized, well-loved mayor, 5,000 people I was able to, to preach to. And uh, there's um, a convention center along with that, um, not a huge convention, but, but they had set up the convention center with its extraordinary, well-furnished uh, reception for the people who came. And at, at the end, of, I was looking for a cup of coffee, and there was a coffee bar, and I got in this line, and I thought, gosh, I don't And it just wasn't moving very And then one of the mayor's staff came to me and said, Pastor, there's, there's another line over here. There's a tea bar, and if you go over there, I think you'll get your tea, aren't you? If tea's okay, I said, sure. So I get in that line, and that line is not moving either. My head elder, who was well-connected with politics, came to me and said, Pastor, there's some Alaska punch behind that door. <laughs> so I went, opened up the door, and there was no punchline. Oh. <laughs> it's a good thing Freilich wasn't at that. <laughs> and this is told in honor of Chip Freilich, who's yeah. out of town and couldn't think with <laughs> You know, the first couple of stories I thought were your version of heaven. <laughs> 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 but seriously, that, I will remember the conversation at Panera for a long, long time. It was just an extraordinary time to be sharing with these pastors. Um, these, um, the stories that were told um, were stories of pastors who had become, in a good sense, enmeshed with their families and who, at these critical times, then was able to minister to them. Um, most difficult situations, three of us have had, had suicides that have had to deal with, which are very, very difficult. Uh, second most difficult is when, uh, um, like Judy and I, um, uh, we, uh, I had a preside. At the, at the funeral of a set of twins, who were stillborn full, full term. Mm -hmm. The mother and father, military folks, were sitting sitting in the church on, on Sunday morning. Um, and I remember where they, they were sitting about. And she told me the last time she felt them in her womb move was at church. And two days later, there was no life. And mm -hmm. there was some sort of infection that took the life of both of them. Um, and of course, in such situations, they delivered, they delivered the children and uh, was with them. The nursing, uh, the nurses at Fairbanks Memorial Hospital did just an extraordinary job to be with those parents in that situation. And me too, because I was with them. And they brought the twins out and brought them and And then to do the funeral, you know? It's really, really incredible. Uh, the couple, of course, 
were um, uh, were deployed out, and I, I didn't. I, this story just came to me, uh, and they uh, they came back and spread the ashes of their twins in the Chena River, which had some meaning for them. And then uh, a couple years later, we heard that they had a water birth and started a family. So, yeah. so, so those are um, tough situations. Um, and uh, the, but again, if you love your pastor, um, do what you can in toward resource your family and your pastor in terms of helping to plan those funerals. Um, I wanted to know if there were stump funeral sermons. Mm-hmm. You know, stump speeches, you know, mm-hmm. things that you, you know, and I, I had, um, for part of my stump funeral sermon, for anybody who had, who I had done private communions with for shut-ins, and, and those were, so I would, part of those sermons, I always went through the liturgy of private communion with people and walking through the confession, apostle creed, um, the Lord's Prayer, consecration of the elements, you know, that, that was always part of it. Um, Pastor uh, Kringle uh, provided all of us with a sermon that he had written uh, for uh, Jack Bentley, um, March 10, 2007. A carefully crafted sermon, just wonderful. And then he admitted that the metaphor that he used and the text uh, that he used, um, which was the tent, that uh, um, St. Paul talks about this body being a tent, that, that that was a metaphor that he used frequently in his, in his funeral sermons. Uh, and then Pastor Winterhoff um, shared with us that he, he never talked about heaven so much as a place, but always as, as a welcoming, where a loving father would welcome his children. Just a beautiful way of, of closing a, a funeral sermon of that. Um, so the whole purpose of a funeral service, though, isn't really to uh, eulogize or praise the deceased. It really should be, you know, the hope for and comfort and possible evangelism to those attending. So. And in Alaska, I... I just told people, we don't do eulogies. I got away with it, uh, fortunately. Um, what we did is that we, um, at the funeral bulletin, we always put a person's life, you know, kind of a summary of their life at the back of the obituary. And then the receptions always provided opportunity for. Um, and, uh, and then also, um, we, eulogies are one thing, Testimonies about a person's faith is something else. And those I would ask that I would see beforehand and that they be written out. Uh, because uh, attending funerals uh, where people just kind of go on and on can, can get out of hand for that. So, um, so we had some really powerful testimonies in terms of, by children and grandchildren, in terms of what this person's faith had meant to them in their own faithful. Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, and then, um, so, um, my experience with getting ready for t- to meet with the pastor, I went to my sermon file, and and I 
And I had never, I had never reread a funeral sermon after I preached it. And so I went back to 2009, had six funerals, and I read those six funerals. It was, and it was just, just an incredible experience. And uh, one of them was for Al Roser, um, and Al Roser um, was a man who showed up at Zion Lutheran Church in Fairbanks, Alaska, three weeks after he arrived there. So it would have been the end of October 1994. Small man, disheveled, very, very sad looking, uh, came in, introduced himself as Al Roser, and he said, are you the new pastor? I said, yeah. He said, I'm looking for a family. And found out that his wife had died a month earlier. He was estranged from his only son. Um, and uh, and that began a 13-year relationship with him. Uh, he was barely literate. He had been an Air Force enlisted man, had, re had um, retired, and then with his wife had started a, a gift shop in Alaska land, a very successful gift shop in Alaska land that his, that his wife had um, engineered and ran. And then, um, so long story short, he was a woodcarver and became uh, the host of our congregation uh, the last six, seven years of his life, um, we hosted LAMP volunteers, uh, Lutheran Association of Missionary Pilots. Uh, they would fly in Fairbanks. Uh, they would come to our church. Uh, we would put them up for a night. We would orient them. And Al was the guy who <coughs> sat in a beautiful Northex, big in our new church. It was just incredible. He spread out his canvas his chair, his carving tools, and he would carve diamond willow. Uh, and he would sell his diamond willow crosses to these volunteers. And so over the course of years, probably 100 or so crosses, um, and he would mount them, beautiful, beautiful uh, crosses, mount them on a little stand, and he instructed people to put them on their bedside tables so that the cross would be the last thing they saw before they went to sleep and the first thing in the morning when they woke up. And in his own very primitive English, he, and we, we duplicated that card to be attached to that. Um, so Pastor Kieschnick, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, came up to visit us and preach for us. And Al um, would carve pectoral crosses for all of our visiting clergy. But for Pastor Kieschnick and Terry, uh, he carved gorgeous walking sticks from Diamond Willow. Just, just beautiful with the names on it, the date, just beautiful, beautiful. And so when, and I knew it meant a lot to, to Pastor Kieschnick. So when Al passed away, I emailed him and said that, and he wrote a letter. And he said, the main memory that he has of their visit to Fairbanks was the presentation of those walking sticks by Al. And those were, for him and Terry, were prized possessions of her. So, and this, this is one that he, he made for me, and his, his carver's mark is, is on the back. So. And Vivian Ames is another story. 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we have a Bible class, six weeks, on heaven and hell. So what is Paul's concern as he starts this paragraph? I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. So he, he, he feels that it's important that people be clear about the end. Um, and what he has done here is that he has given us an idea of what the end might be like. So, is, is this the same as Matthew chapter 25 in the final judgment? You know, this is different. This is quite different. So, um, because of that, I want to go to um, this book, um, by John Bailey of Diary of Private Prayer. He wrote this in 1934 based on lectures that he gave in 1933 in the, at Yale. Uh, he was a Scottish theologian and um, it's um, And Life Everlasting. And this goes along with the uh, I think I had a, a line um, on the first page, the gradual extinguishing of hellfires and the downsizing of heaven. Um, and I just want to read uh, this that I gleaned from this book in some personal reflections. So, uh, the extinguishing of the fires of hell and the downsizing of heaven. And that is a way to talk about that we, uh, we kind of uh, smother or ignore hell. We don't hear sermons on hell. Um, and, uh, and in terms of heaven, you know, we kind of shy away from, uh, from the heaven tourism business, which is quite, in certain circles, very successful. You, know, you write a book about, you know, so. So, you will see uh, in your handout uh, that there's no lack of scriptural references to what life outside of God's eternal kingdom is like, hell, and there's no lack of scriptural references to paradise or heaven. In his wonderful book, And the Life Everlasting, the noted Scottish theologian attempts to understand why in his, le why, in his lectures in 1933, um, there was such a movement in the previous 50 years from an emphasis on the future to the present. So this book is over 80 years ago, and already he was observing on this. Uh, there was much less concern about the life everlasting and more concern about the present life. With the crushing burden of surviving life 
being lifted by science and technology, by medicine and entertainment, modern travel, life has become increasingly easier making the hope of heaven and the life everlasting much less urgent and attractive. Bailey points to the root of this in the Renaissance. Now, our connection as Lutherans with the Renaissance is Martin Luther, because he's right at the cusp of the Renaissance. Uh, and many Lutherans, scientists, Copernicus uh, and others, were part of the Renaissance. And uh, he, uh, he writes this about the Renaissance. And, and bear with me, because I think this is so important for us to understand, that, that this whole idea that heaven really kind of goes back to the Renaissance. He says, the Renaissance was above all a rediscovery of the engrossing character of certain purely secular and earthly human interests. Literature and classical lore, architecture and sculpture, painting and music, craftsmanship of every kind, science and invention and travel, these and the many other amenities of a cultural society had throughout the Christian ages been drawn into the service of religion. Uh, and I think this is probably the most evident in the cathedrals in Europe. You know, these, these, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred year old cathedrals where everything was to the glory of God. All the artwork, the sculpture, the architecture, so. Um, uh, and they also have been indulged in for their own sake as providing harmless relaxation from the one serious business of life, which was, of course, the preparation of the soul for its eternal destiny. That was the big issue. But now the tendency arose to find in these terrestrial occupations a quite serious importance of their own. There appeared what was for the Christian world a strange phenomenon, the spectacle of men gravely and eagerly devoting themselves to the pursuit of knowledge simply for the sake of knowing and to the pursuit of beauty simply for the sake of enjoyment. It was natural that such men should soon become could should soon come to be known as the humanist Erasmus. For had they not added to the old Christian absorption in God a new absorption in the secular and temporal life of man? So, uh, the idea of where we are at the present time, it's just not a recent phenomenon. I mean, we've been going down this path, um, and Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, uh, the, the great uh, Azusa movement beginning in the 20th century in terms of Pentecostal movement, all of that has been kind of an effort to, to reverse the course of people who are following the, the age of science. I don't mean that in a bad way, but but saying that science proves that there is no metaphysical, there is no afterlife, there is no God, the atheistic, all that stuff um, comes about. And along with this, in Christian circles, was the relativizing of the inspired word of God, the Bible. That the Bible no longer became the source of doctrine, but rather the Bible was a piece of literature to be investigated and um, looked at sources, source theories, uh, much like any other piece of classical literature would be looked at. And in the course of that, the Bible lost its place as being the inspired word of God, <clears throat> suitable to um, as a way of salvation, a way of life. And of course, that has been countered by uh, fundamentalists on one extreme, and in the middle, 
um, confessional Lutherans who have really said, no, no, uh, the Bible stands on the basis of its um, inspiration by the Holy Spirit and what it brings to us in terms of the promises of God. So, um, so very interesting, this man, when he talks about what is heaven like, because that's what this book is about. You know, he is defending the life everlasting, uh, which is that phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Um, what is heaven like? He finally gets to that. Um, he says, granted that eternal life exists, what, we shall be asked, will it be like? And then at that point, he, Bailey, asks himself to be excused because in this task, quote, agnosticism is assuredly the better part of wisdom. And so his whole point is that when it comes to what is heaven, we should claim that we do not know. And that the reason that we do not know is because there are so many different images and metaphors for life after death. And that um, in, in those different images, most of them are in the form of poetry or in the book of Revelation where we have the most concrete description. It's apocalyptic literature that was never meant to be interpreted literally, but rather it was symbolic in order. The book of Revelation is written for one thing, to give hope and encouragement to Christians who are under persecution. And in order to do that, uh, St. John um, went to an esoteric kind of imagery and language which we now have identified as apocalyptic literature. Um, that um, was kind of a, a secret code language that Christians under persecution could read and be encouraged because they understood the meaning behind those specific images and those numbers. Um, Bailey goes on. Unfortunately, this proper agnosticism when it comes to what is heaven's like has been replaced by a Gnosticism in, by a knowledge such as has offered to us extensive and detailed knowledge of the world to come. Many a celestial geography, I love that term, celestial geography has been committed to paper. Many a chart has been traced to the new Jerusalem. Many a classified directory has been compiled of its various denizens. End of quote. The descriptions of heaven and scripture he rightly identifies as being part of the genre of apocalyptic literature, which was not meant to be taken literally. So his, his whole point is that we, we don't know and we should not be afraid um, not, we should not be afraid to admit that, that, that we really don't know. But the important thing is that we have these words in all of the, as words of comfort. Um, and so, um, even if we, even if there was a vision, how would you describe it in words we could understand, or parables, or relationships? It's like describing what a space booster, or a rocket looks like, or a helicopter. Uh, I mean, these things that, in the time of the writing of the Bible, were in the future, and you don't know how to describe it. Even well, if you had the vision, uh, on on your. On your handout, um, there are many efforts to do that, and I have referenced those uh, on the second to last page. Um, Near-death experiences, um, the, um, 
there's been a lot of attempts in order to uh, describe that whole um, what heaven is like. Um, heaven is for real. The little boys. Is, have any of you seen the movie? Heaven is for real. Came out about three years ago. Yes, back then. Yeah. And the book. Uh, I have a book on my Kindle. Uh, I reread it this past week. It's a fascinating story. And the things that 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 this boy reports um, in terms of things that he could not know that he experienced while in heaven uh, is really really um, interesting. So um, when. When John Bailey said back in 1934, there's a lot of people doing it. Uh, it's still the same. Uh, the, uh, there, there's a touching story that he uh, writes right at the beginning of the chapter, The Nature of Eternal Life. Where, and he goes on and on about it. But at the very beginning, he, he writes this. It was once my lot to visit an acquaintance a fine Christian gentleman who was about to die. His mind was plainly working upon the great change that so soon awaited him, and he spoke about it freely. But he told me how all he had ever heard or read concerning the future life, there remained most of all in his mind a simple story of which he had now quite forgotten the source. The story was of just another dying man as himself who when informed by his devotedly Christian doctor that the end was very near, asked the doctor if he had any conviction as to what awaited him in the life beyond. The doctor fumbled for an answer, but before he could speak, there was heard a scratching at the door, and his answer was given him. Do you hear that? The doctor asked his patient. That is my dog. I left him downstairs, but he grew impatient and has come up and hears my voice. He has no notion what is inside that door, but he knows I am here. Now it is not now is it not the same with you? You do not know what lies beyond the door, but you know your master is there. Isn't that, isn't that great? You know that we and that um, and that reminds me of Captain Winterhouse the way he closed all of his, what he said, closed all of his sermons with that wonderful picture of welcoming, of, of God's welcoming his love, his beloved children. So, okay, um, at this point, uh, we're going to be getting into scriptures now, CTCR document. Uh, any questions before we, before we deal, deal into that? Um, so, in your handout, there are these uh, stories, um, and then um, yeah, here you go. John fourteen. Let not your heart be troubled. Um, if we can read that, uh, John chapter fourteen, verse six. The first passage that we looked at, First Thessalonians 4 and, and uh, John 14, when families came in and didn't have an idea, I would usually suggest for the epistle reading, First Thessalonians 4, and as a gospel reading, John chapter 14. So, um, Jim, would you read, please? 
much you want to read? Uh, I want you to read through verse 6. Okay. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Great. So, what does this say? I think context is important. Uh, Jesus, in the previous chapter at the end, he just let his disciples know that he was leaving. And that's why their hearts are troubled. I mean, and there were good reasons for them to be, because they had a very dependent relationship on Jesus at that point. He's leaving help. And then Jesus takes their immediate concern and transforms it to what concern? Not any concern regarding this life, but the life to come. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the picture of heaven here is what? Home. What? Home. Home. Uh, heaven is my home. You know, the, uh, the uh, many mansions, many rooms, house, wow. And then, of course, the, uh, the wonderful rejoinder by Thomas who said, hey, and then Jesus, which is, which is a great punchline for Lutheran sermons, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And it's a, it's a powerful but soft touch to witness to the fact of how important when we celebrate a Christian's life, the fact that Jesus is the one that provides the way, and that he is the truth about our lives. So it's, it's a beautiful test. Um, we're, the, um, there's a lot of descriptions about hell, um, Dante's uh, the Nine Circles, uh, in which the various people, depending upon how bad they were, um, are consigned to lower regions of hell. Um, this is from um, the Commission of Theology and Church Relations document. Um, I only had part of it up here, but in your handout, I reprinted the entire G section of this. Because um, if you are looking for scriptures, a complete list of scriptures that has anything to do with hell, it's right here in your handout. I mean, you've got it. Uh, and it is just, um, and this is official position of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I need to point out on the next page, of the, uh, right before eternal life, well, actually, uh, it begins the page before. Um, the last two lines. Since Christians are still sinners, this threat of the law should be preached among them also. It should not be weakened by the substitution of other ideas on the basis of human reason, such as the annihilation of the wicked, the possibility of purgatory after death, universalism, and the possibility of the conversion of those living who are not drafted. Um, and so, if, if, if these are the texts that you go by, that's your conclusion. But there are certainly other texts 
that gives rise to those who um, either um, teach a radical universalism or a modified universal. There are those scriptures. And um, St. <coughs> Paul's own struggle in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are, for me, the place where Paul, at the very end of chapter 11, leaves it to God's hands and the mystery of what God is going to do. Uh, in terms it's of important, to, I think, to understand that the annihilationists and the universalists aren't saying just human reason leads us to these things. They think they're finding <coughs> their views in Scripture. Absolutely, yeah. right. And that, um, and the, uh, who's the Yale Christian philosopher? Keith DeRose. Yeah. yeah. Um, wrote this wonderful paper where he takes the Scriptures that he believes uh, supports a universalistic view in terms of it is God's, among them are those passages where God's will let all be saved and come to the knowledge. And so, I think, um, makes that point there. Uh, in terms of life everlasting, uh, eternal life, there, the second sentence is really important. Um, this is H, eternal life. Um, to be sure, the believer already has eternal life and thus is in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. And that's what we believe and teach, that at the point of baptism, we are put right with God, and at that point, we enjoy eternal life. And um, that the judgment precedes our baptism. That the judgment of God, once and for all, was um, the verdict on sin, and the sentence of sin was carried out by Christ's death on the cross over, and we become part of it. We were buried with Christ by baptism and death. And yeah, buried. And even as he was raised from death, even though we should also uh, walk in the of life. So, um, a lot of scriptures, and then finally, uh, oh, this is some artwork. Um, this is um, Gustav Dore, Dore, um, the actress and, um, Dante and Beatrice looking at the Atheistic Vision um, and the eternal life passages that you have in front of you, and then um, in terms of work, near death experiences. Um, the, on your handout, added some additional comments about near death experiences um, that. Uh, From a clinical, last page, from a clinical perspective, research is following two, two groups, those who were resuscitated after they were pronounced clinically dead, and those who, because of severe injury or disease, came very close to death. And characteristics, um, uh, generally, there is not every year that includes all of these, but these surface enough times that they are kind of characteristics. Um, sense of being dead, um, peace of the tunnel, we probably heard that, rising rapidly, reluctance to return, life review. Um, and then theories, um, manifestations of mental illness, NDEs are due to chemical imbalances similar to drug-induced or LSD trips, out-of-body experiences as autoscopic auto hallucinations in terms of where people have a sense of their own being in front of them. Autoscopic. Um, and you want to talk about? Yeah. Oh, 
Um, so there's some interesting research they're doing on these uh, out-of-body experience, near-death experiences. So um, they're trying to figure out if um, if uh, you can have an out-of-body experience when you have no brain activity activity at all. So they're putting iPads on the ceilings of certain uh, emergency rooms, and if somebody comes in and has goes to no brain activity and then comes back and says they had a near-death experience, they'll ask them. Uh, what did you see on the iPad on the ceiling? Um, and and they can tell, they change the pictures, they can tell what time they would have seen the pictures. They're trying to figure out if they had an experience while, no, while there was no brain activity at all. It's kind of interesting. Uh, from a religious perspective, uh, these experiences can be profoundly life-changing. In fact, many people uh, who have been through this talk about how their life is really different after they've been through this kind of thing. And so is it is it something that God might use in order to give people a second chance? Um, certainly. Um, if you've ever talked to somebody who's had a near-death experience, you know that when they talk about it, they're dead serious. I mean, it, it, this is something that they will, um, and often they are reluctant to, <laughs> what? Pastor Frailing, here in spirit. So, so, so we take that with a great deal of respect. Um, uh, here's another picture of the tunnel. This is Hieronymus Bosch. The picture of the uh, ascent is the Imperium, a very famous painting. Again, um, trying to document the fact that these near-death experiences are something that have just not come up, that have been part of. And, and the book that I read said they that experience is documented in all the. <laughs> all the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Whoever it was that did life after life, or whatever that book was that was about the five. You know, I can't remember her name, but she quoted the Egyptian Book of the Dead sure. often. And then do you have this? Uh, a guide to funeral and memorial services that came in the world. If you don't have it, it's available in the office, or you can download it. This is a wonderful, wonderful guide that's available to you. And again, if you love your pastor, and your family, this is something you can do this afternoon, really. Unless it gets above 60 degrees in God's sight. We're going to be meeting Tuesday morning at Panera. At 10 o'clock, all of you are invited if you want to join us uh, for the congregation. Um, Philip and I would be delighted to have your feedback on the class. Uh, any of the classes, as you know, uh, we had radically different classes. Um, Dr. Phillips' classes were very much on the philosophical. Uh, mine were more on the biblical, theological. And uh, we, we want your feedback because our next class is the last class, and we hope that we will be able to address uh, issues and concerns that you all have on the basis of your experience with the class. Uh, it would be very helpful to us because at this point, we don't get anything on the book for next week, and we're looking uh, for your feedback. I'm sure we can fill the air. You, you don't want us picking topics. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray. Dear God, for this time, for the promises that you give us faith 
to believe um, and for the joy that awaits us uh, because we know that you are there waiting for us. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org.